So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 4, and I'll begin by asking you a question before I get to the text. Do you, if you're in school, do you, or if you're out of school, did you have a favorite activity in school? When you're in school, or if you're there, now, do you have a favorite activity? I think we would all say yes. At least all of my friends had something they liked in school. It might have been recess. It might have been phys ed. It might have been lunch. It might have been daydreaming, uh, one of my specialties. Uh, But my own personal favorite, the class I would have taken all day, if you allowed me to, was history. History was my favorite class. I loved reading about history. I loved thinking about history. And one of my particularly favorite activities was to think about how I would have acted in the moment when the event was taking place. So for instance, now I know you're Canadian, not American, but in America, we had a revolution back in the 1770s where we sought independence from the crown. We talked to him for 15 years and it didn't go anywhere. And finally we said, you're not going to tax us without representation. So we took up arms and resisted the crown. And I wonder if I was alive then, which side would I be on? Would I be loyal to the crown? Would I be independent like the Quakers? Or would I take up arms? Uh, we, we tend to look back at history with rose-colored glasses and think it was all easy and obvious, but it's not. It's not that easy. It's not that obvious. Another example in the U.S., in the South, and this is, this is hard for me to believe, but when I'm a 10-year-old in 1965, is just when the Jim Crow laws in the South are being undone. And so I wonder if I was like 10 years older, meaning born 10 years sooner, what would I have done about that problem? Would I have marched in the South to strike down laws that I think were most unjust and and most unfair, uh, uh, sad and and tragic? What what would I have done in that moment? I, I don't know. It's difficult to think through what it'd be like if I was there. My mind goes to the Bible, and I wonder the very same thing. So, for instance, if I'm a friend of David and Goliath comes along, what would I do? Now, keep in mind, only David went out by himself. The entire army, including his family, just stays back. Well, what would I have done if if I... Wouldn't we all like to think we're the hero? Like, David, I'll go with you. I'll be your right-hand guy. We'll do this together. You'd, You'd like to think that, but... The odds aren't with us that we would have done that. What what if you were in a town where Jesus showed up? What would you do with Jesus? You know, there were individuals that did not receive him, that that resisted him. We we tend to think, well, most of us are believers. Of course I would have loved Jesus. It's not that obvious when when you think about it. And after Jesus, my mind goes to the apostle Paul. What would I have done with the Apostle Paul? If Paul came to town, would I recognize him as a father of the faith? Or would I have resisted his leadership? The Corinthian church struggled with Paul. Now, we'd like to all think we'd have been great with Paul. He'd have been a spiritual father to us. And and we just would have all gotten along. But we know as human beings, it's not always that easy. The Corinthians struggled with Paul. He was, to them, unimpressive. 
It was unimpressive. So in 2 Corinthians 11, and I apologize, I made a mistake in sending the file. I don't have these quotes. But in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 3, Paul writes this to this church in Corinth. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, verse six, listen to this, even if I am unskilled in speaking. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. Which points to an important truth. Even the Apostle Paul in Corinth is not considered an impressive speaker, which comforts us all, especially who are leaders. There are no perfect leaders. That animal just doesn't exist because everyone comes into this world as a fallen human being and we grow forward from that point. All leaders who are fallen human beings have weaknesses, so therefore we look for grace in leaders. On the other hand, if you look at Paul's view, Paul struggled with the church in Corinth. One author said this church had 20 major problems. I don't know how many major problems you think you have as a church, but you're not Corinth. Uh, you're not in their league. They had, pro- they had people getting drunk during communion. They, they had a boatload of problems, sin in their life in numerous areas, and yet Paul faithfully works with them, and he, he counsels them even though he's struggling with them. They were his gifted problem child. So Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians with a concerned heart. He writes to them four times. We only have two of them. We have actually two and four, as I understand it. The first and third are letters that are lost. And so it might be an interesting hobby to consider what we would have done in real time if we were actually there. But what I'd like us to consider this afternoon is what's important to us now, which is how do leaders lead the church and how do followers follow? We're all under the word of God. It speaks to us all with authority. It's our marching orders. It's our guide for life. So how do we do church? In 1 Corinthians 4, we're going to learn four marks of faithful Christian leadership. That's my title. Four marks of faithful Christian leadership. We're going to see the effect of the cross on both how we are led, how we lead, and how we follow in the church. So we'll make our way through these four points. I'll read the text as we go. First point is this. Leaders are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I'd like to read verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul is now orienting the Corinthians to a proper view of Christian leadership. He spent the first three chapters, by the way, with a glorious description and explanation of the gospel and why we ought not to have factions in the church, why we don't worship men, why we we recognize leaders and follow them, but he he describes the gospel and unpacks it wonderfully, uh, describes how the gospel will function in their lives, now turns the corner to a proper view of leadership. He writes for himself, and he writes for the members of his apostolic team. He says how you should regard us. This team will include, in the letter to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Sosthenes is in 1.1, Apollos is in 3.5, Timothy is in 4.17, which we'll read in a bit, uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus in 16.17. Us, by extension, includes every leader. And for you, Sovereign Grace Church of Toronto, as I preach this sermon, this means we're considering your view of your pastors, which I'll refer to as Josh and Tim. Uh, what Brett and Cyril do are important work. They're elders in training, but your sovereign grace ordained elders are Josh and Tim. How, how do you collectively regard them? If I ask you to describe them to me, what's the description you give? It's an important question. We don't think about this often, but the answer that we want to give is in our text, they should be viewed as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, verse one. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. To be a servant of Christ means that the leader's first ambition is to please Jesus. The leader's eyes are fixed on Jesus. He cares what Jesus values, what Jesus thinks, what Jesus wants to communicate. That's the order of first importance. Faithful leaders do not seek first to please people. This is important. Because at least in the States, the way, the way business is done is we say the customer is always right. And because in the U.S., again, our churches are so uh, plentiful in some areas that there's just this consumer culture where if I don't like this about that guy or I don't like the music at this church, I move over here. I just, I hop around to find what I like because I'm a consumer. Faithful leaders do not first seek to please people. Paul put it this way when he wrote to the Galatians. Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You can't be a servant of Christ and try to make people happy first. Now, pastors will take people being happy. We aren't trying to upset people intentionally. Aren't trying to rub uh, hurt, salt into someone's wound. We're... We're not trying to be difficult, but it just means Jesus comes first. So a faithful leader always keeps his eye on his Lord and Savior. It's a little bit like, because we do want people to be happy, it's a little bit like if you're talking to a a dad, a man, about 
the best way to love his kids. If you're talking to that guy, you're probably going to say, look, the best thing you can do is love your wife, love their mom, uh, love her, treasure her, uh, help them see that they're secure in the love that's in this family, and that's a glorious thing. They, they benefit indirectly from that love that a dad has for his wife. It's the same thing for a leader. As a leader looks to Jesus and wants to do what Jesus wants, the indirect result is, of course, most people will be happy and satisfied with that. Not all will be. Uh, There will always be those who push back and are discontent. But the leader aims to look at Jesus first. A steward of the mysteries of God is one who seeks to proclaim truths previously hidden, now revealed by divine revelation and apostolic proclamation. This means that they seek to proclaim and promote the gospel because our only boast is in the cross. The cross is in the central position, the central focus. It's the crux of our salvation. The gospel is referred to as the mystery of God. Because it was once hidden in the Old Testament. Now Jesus comes to earth. We sing about it, so we think it looks crystal clear. We don't get why the folks in the Old Testament couldn't see it more clearly. But, but we have hindsight, and that's, that's 2020. Our only boast is in the cross, so what Paul is exhorting is that leaders primarily promote the gospel. So leaders in verse 2 are called by God to be faithful. What's faithful mean? Well, a faithful leader, a faithful pastor will feed you the word of God and help you apply the word of God in your life. That's the aim. The pastor wants to prepare you for eternity because they know one day every person gives an account of their life to God. So they want to position you to walk by faith, not by sight, so that you live your life for what is most important in this life. It's not always obvious what's most important. But we seek to proclaim Christ because he is most important. This application of the word into your lives is always cross-centered. It always flows out of the effect of the gospel on our lives. It means a pastor does not lord it over. You have to have a category of lording over. You have to make sense out of what that means. The pastor doesn't micromanage. The pastor is not a CEO. The pastor is simply a faithful pastor. He binds up wounds. He restores souls. He walks through adversity and suffering. And he seeks to equip the saints. In verses 3 through 5, because leaders are servants of Christ, Paul points out the Lord will judge leaders. That's sober. Uh, Leaders live understanding there's a big exam at the end. We all get the exam But pastors get a more serious exam, which is why James says not many should presume to be teachers, because there is this more serious exam that awaits, and a pastor can find that thought daunting. God will judge us at the end of our ministry. But notice, Paul says he doesn't judge himself. And by the way, this doesn't mean you don't confront leaders. You do, when necessary, speak up. That's appropriate. But it means you do so in a way that's charitable toward them, knowing they will give an account to God. They will never give an account to you. They will give an account 
to God. I know what it's like to be together at a family reunion. My family is largely Christian, almost entirely. I know what it's like to hear complaints about a pastor at a particular church. So I'm just listening. I'm not participating in the, in the conversation. Um, it's easy to hear complaints about pastors. I'd suggest wise families and friends avoid such talk. When you talk about your pastors, what you want to say is they're servants of Christ. They're, they're stewards of the gospel. You don't want to unpack. So here's where the conversation can go. Well, he can preach, but he can't counsel. Or he can counsel, but he can't administrate. Because everybody's got their weakness. Every single pastor does. So there are always things you can point at that aren't filled with grace. But we want to understand our leaders and our pastors as servants of Christ, stewards of the gospel. That's what they're doing. That's what they're about. And that's how we want to describe them to others because that's what they're aiming to do. And in your case, I know your pastors, that's what they're aiming to do. The promise in verse five is remarkable and it comforts a pastor or a leader because it says they will receive commendation from the Lord. That's remarkable. Here's where I live and you have to understand it's where your guys could easily live as well. I'm inclined to think that day at the end where the Lord judges me, I bet he's going to tear me to pieces. You were an idiot here. What were you thinking there? You shouldn't have done it that way. That's what I'd be expected to hear, but that's not what Paul writes. Paul says you'll get commendation from the Lord. It's good to remind ourselves there's no condemnation in Christ. And in giving this assessment of our lives at the end, we're inclined to think in a certain way where we get a balance scale out and we're going to do our thing. It's not the ways of the Lord. The Lord's going to give commendations to pastors who were in the fight, seeking to faithfully serve Christ and seeking to faithfully preach the gospel and apply the gospel, however perfectly or imperfectly. The Lord will bring commendations to them. And that is, it's glorious to think it won't be failures leading the way. So listen, church, blessed is the church that dwells together in unity and in harmony, and has minds that are in one accord, there the blessing of God will flow. So faithful leaders are faithful to Jesus. They aren't fearful of people, and they feed the flock. They aren't afraid of you. Knowing full well that they bring something to your attention, you might say, that's it, I'm out of here, I'm going somewhere else. If they're faithful, they aren't afraid of you. The flock... You who are following the pastors are patient in your assessment of them in the fear of the Lord. Understanding the Lord isn't finished with them. Understanding the Lord's at work and doing a good thing in them. And he's faithful to finish that work. We look for leaders to be mature, but not perfect. Second point, leaders hold themselves to the highest standard. So they're servants of Jesus and stewards of the gospel Secondly, leaders hold themselves to the highest standard. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 7. Paul writes, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? 
What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast? As if you did not receive it. In verse six, Paul's essentially saying, I'm not a hypocrite. The last thing you want, you know this in any situation, you know this in the workplace, you know it in the church. The last thing you want is a leader that's a hypocrite. Talks one way, acts another, uh, puts on some sort of air uh, about himself. Paul's saying he's not a hypocrite because he's applied these things to himself and Apollos, a leader in the church, must have integrity. And this will actually enable Paul in verse 16 to say to them, follow my example. Follow my example. And I want to suggest it's good when leaders can say that about their lives. Follow my example. Because leaders are always offering up an example. And it's remarkable how leadership has this effect. And again, I'm talking leadership culture, whether it's at work or in the church, people tend to be like their leaders. It's just this remarkable thing where if a church, if the pastors have a dogmatic, argumentative attitude, guess what you see in the people? You got this dogmatic, argumentative attitude. If the pastors tend to be encouragers and servers, guess what you see in the church? Encouragers and servers. People are like their leaders. So Paul's saying, I'm applying these things to myself because leadership matters. You want leaders, pastors, who are genuine and more concerned about their flaws than yours. You want pastors who aren't just poking a finger at you, pointing out your imperfections. You want pastors and leaders who are more concerned about their own shortcomings. And this is where I want to commend Josh and Tim to you. That's been my experience with your pastors. You have to understand when pastors are together, conversations are a bit different sometimes. Because you can talk about your church and how things are going there and how people are treating you. And in those moments, you inevitably know what a pastor thinks of his flock. You know whether pastors are fond or not fond, whether they treasure the flock or don't. I've watched your pastors examine their own lives and I hear the affection they have for you. And I do not see or hear any expectations they place on you that aren't present in their own lives as they pursue godliness. And that's glorious. They're they're faithful men in that regard. It's a glorious work that they are doing. Now, verse six has an important statement. It's a statement regarding the limits of pastoral authority and our spirituality. It says, quote, we do not go beyond what is written. Got to get this. We do not go beyond what is written. What's happened to me over my decades of ministry at points, not often, but I will have someone who tells me what they want me to do in a particular moment. They love me and have a plan for my life. Uh, they, they know what I should do in a moment, and these moments are sometimes hard. I'll give examples. In one instance, there was a couple, a uh, sweet couple, doing premarital counseling, and the man had a problem with porn. And in our day and age, that's not exactly novel, sadly enough. And so they, they turn to me and say, it had come up in the premarital sessions, they turn to me and say, you got to call this wedding off. 
It, it can't go forward. I, I caught the concern. Uh, I, I understood the seriousness of the problem. It is a serious problem. And um, I'm thinking, the Bible nowhere, nowhere tells me that I'm in charge of who marries whom. I'm not making that call. I'm not telling a couple they should get married or, or uh, there, there's nothing here that says that's a pastor's job. Uh, some may fancy themselves matchmakers. That's fine. Um, I mean, you can, you can speak, but you don't have authority. You, you don't go beyond what is written in terms of your authority. So in this instance, we followed up with parents talk to the couple. Are you sure you want to go ahead with this? They did. And I wasn't doing the wedding ceremony, which made it easier. It was a pastor in another Sovereign Grace church was doing the ceremony. We had conversations and the parents and other pastor were of a mindset to go ahead. This was very hard for the couple doing the premarital counseling. They just, they saw nothing but red flags ahead. Like this is just going to go bad. And, uh, and one understands the risk of that. It's entirely possible that this is not going to go well. But I don't know the future. And I don't know a heart. And I've worked at this long enough to know that I've seen couples that I think are solid later fall apart. I've seen couples I thought were questionable make it. And all I know for sure, I mean, all I know is... The question is whether the grace of God is operating in their lives. And so what we say to couples when we're doing the counseling in a premarital sense, we say this, listen, we can't tell what your future is going to be. What we know is this, if you move to the center of church life, we know your chances of doing well in marriage are much larger. You improve the likelihood of success and fruitfulness exponentially, but... If you move to the fringe of the church, if you move to the edge of the church, you're not very active in meetings. You don't go to midweek meetings. You're just, you're very casual about your Christianity. That marriage I'm concerned for. I don't care how well they're doing now. Maybe no major sins evident. Don't care about that if you understand my language of not caring. I don't care about it. In regards to what's down the road, I don't know. The Bible says sins of some men go before them. Some go behind them. I don't know what's going to happen in 20 years. But I know this, if they move to the center of the church, I know that grace is available and I know that the chances are much greater for success. While I'm on this, let me talk a couple of the stories. So, um, so with my wife, Beth, Beth's a mom, a mom's mom, and moms care. Uh, they, they care so deeply about their kids. It, it's always precious. So my two oldest sons, God bless them, go for girls that aren't raised in a Christian home. Uh, <laughs> it was debatable that they were Christians when they're dating my sons. Uh, we weren't sure if they were following Jesus or our sons is the way that worked. And, uh, and so Beth, Beth is bemoaning this and she's like, um, and by the way, she's sorry she couldn't be here. Um, <laughs> Beth is like, they, they won't know the grand hymns of the church. Like the, the, the kids won't grow up singing the grand hymns. Uh, and, and that's tragic. Like, like um, this is not going to go well. And, and she was just spiraling down into this fear, right, that, that can grip a heart. And uh, I, I just said, uh, look, um, it's up to our sons how that family goes. It's up to them. 
They're the head of the home. It's their spiritual responsibility to be a priest. If they do well, the upbringing won't matter at all. It'll be inconsequential because you can grow forward. You can learn hymns in your 20s and 30s. That's, that's not mission impossible. That can happen. So now Beth would say, I couldn't imagine them with anybody else. I'm so glad they married the spouse they married. But she was gripped with concern back then. It was hard. And she was, wasn't sure I shouldn't do something at that point. But pastorally, I'm arguing there's no authority for that. I've had people come to me for counsel over cars, over which house they should buy. And they want to lean on me. And I don't let them lean. Because <laughs> if, they, if they buy a house and like six months in, there's a huge flood in the basement. <laughs> Who's responsible? Me. I'm not, I'm not responsible for that. I, I can't help. I'm not, I'm not going there. So financial decisions. Not, and a, a little nuance might be helpful. At Living Hope over the years, I had two families come to me saying, we're very concerned about the house we're buying. It's very large. And we wonder what people think. Will that be a problem? They were wise to get my counsel. But I said, look, you both are intentionally going to open this up to the church. Have folks in here often. It's a glorious thing. By all means, go ahead. Uh, it ought not to be a struggle for other people. How many kids you have? What clothes do you wear? Where do you work? Pastors aim to counsel wisdom and faith toward God, and then they expect you to apply the counsel as you see fit. You are responsible for your choices before the Lord. The way it's put in Ezekiel 18 is this way. Uh, The son won't die for the sins of the father, and the father won't die for the sins of the son. And that's a principle that runs through like we're each responsible for our choices. So we're wise to get counsel. I, I hope you know that. But counsel from a pastor is not determinative. Now, it is determinative if there's spiritual authority behind it. So let's say, for example, you're in a situation where you're committing adultery with someone. The pastor has authority, the word of God, to say that sin, your sin must discontinue. Uh, you must repent. That's proper use of authority because that's right here. We work with that. We do not go beyond what is written because if we do, the text says someone's going to be puffed up. A pastor who goes beyond what is written will be puffed up, will lord it over others, consider themselves more important, more right, and that won't build unity in the church. So pastors carefully exercise their use of counsel and they don't want to see that loss of unity in the spirit, that loss of that which is ours in Christ, so we don't treat each other this way. Uh, back at Living Hope, so I'm just trying to think of some of the conflicts that folks have had. Moms will conflict over uh, whether they get vaccines or not, should their kids get vaccines. So there's a whole movement that says, no, never. And there are those that say, you're crazy, absolutely. And they don't see eye to eye. And they can get offended over their choices or food choices or schedules for children. Uh, so what's a pastor think about whether to put a baby on a schedule or not? <laughs> I'm like, get out of here. Like, oh, <laughs> I do not have an opinion on that. Um, see my wife, she might. I have no opinion on that. I'm not going there. there. There is no authority to do that. So you don't want to go to your pastors really in areas where they have no authority wondering what you should do in your life. You are free in Christ to do a number of things. There are areas where the pastor has authority and it's appropriate to step in where sin is taking place or where something might be dangerous. It's entirely appropriate to point that concern out. 
Now in verse seven, Paul explains that everything is grace. The cross of Christ has given us every blessing and everything is grace. So he says everything we have, we received. This means there's no room to boast about ourselves. Some people are prone to talk about themselves a great deal. Don't want to boast about ourselves. Want to boast about God, about what we have in Christ. Our tongue often gets us in trouble because we often crave glory in a situation. But grace is amazing. And the strength we have, our next heartbeat, situations in life, they're all grace. And so we're thankful to God for that. And surely our hearts, when we see the grace, that we haven't earned anything, when we see that, Surely gratitude fills our hearts and our lips because we marvel that God did not resist us or judge us prematurely. It's, it's incredible that we were not eradicated. And it's a glorious thing because God is merciful. So we're a grateful people because everything we have, we received. And as we live the Christian life, there's a lot of freedom for us to make choices and decisions in our life. Number three, leaders are sufferers. This is verse eight through 13. Already, Paul says, you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign so that we all might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise for Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we're in disrepute. In the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The Corinthian church, and this might be hard for us to relate to, but they suffered from what theologians call an over-realized eschatology. What that basically means is they thought we'd have heaven here now. Just so you're aware, we live in a fallen world. This is not yet heaven. This is not yet the end, end story. There is much glory ahead for us. So if you expect to have heaven now, you're going to think a certain way. But the kingdom of God, as you should know, is already, but not yet. The kingdom was inaugurated. The kingdom has come, but it's not yet finalized. It will be, praise God, one day. You, you will find this over-realized eschatology at work wherever there's pressure for miracles and signs and wonders. Uh, wherever, So we desire that, right? We desire to see people healed. We pray for folks, but we're not pressuring people and we're not wondering what's wrong if it isn't happening. It's not the norm. Miracles, by definition, are not the norm in the Christian life. So the church in Corinth thought they were special because they had all these gifts. I mean, Paul said you lack no gifts in chapter one. He's writing to these folks. So the Corinthians were full of pride and arrogance because they thought they had arrived because of all of these gifts. Paul wishes he had arrived because Paul knew that when he arrives, it's eternity and it's in the presence of Jesus for forever. On the contrary, mature pastors are willing to be mistreated. It's not heaven on earth just yet. I have a friend who refers to this as sheep bites. Uh, Sheep can't bite, of course, but people can give wounds that cut deep because pastors are human too. 
And it's very easy to crave understanding and being understood. When you think someone's not understanding, it can be hard for a pastor. Leaders will encounter slander. They'll be reviled. They don't make as much money as other jobs. And they're willing to be the scum of the earth. They lay down their lives. And it's appropriate from time to time to thank them for this. We can take it for granted that God gives gifts and that men step into this position and hopefully without compulsion are serving. From time to time, it's appropriate to say thank you. I have two personal heroes, uh, historic heroes, when it comes to pastors who suffered. There are many. uh, They're legion, really. Uh, The first was Jonathan Edwards, uh, colonial days. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was fired for the way he handled two situations. His grandfather allowed an open communion policy. He shut that down because he had individuals in the town who were not believers partaking in the Lord's table. He wanted that to stop. And he, they say, mishandled a situation regarding a certain book that involved youth. The vote for Jonathan Edwards to be dismissed was 200 to 23. Um, He's considered the greatest theologian in American history. His thought is influential. He was fired, but he pressed on. He went on to the Indian frontier and served as a missionary, making meager wages. But there, his major works that have endured were penned. And so we thank God for those works, but he paid a price to do them. He laid down his life and Uh, I respect the way he pressed on and the way he worked through being fired. My other hero is Charles Simeon, not as well known. Uh, Simeon was a pastor in Cambridge, and I'll read a bit of his story. Uh, The vicar of Trinity Church Cambridge died suddenly. The congregation wanted the assistant curate, Mr. Hammond, as their new vicar. When the bishop awarded the position to Simeon instead, Simeon faced serious opposition. The pews sat half empty because the people boycotted him. Simeon offered to resign, but his bishop would not let him. After that, he sometimes found the church locked against him. When it opened, the pew gates were locked. Simeon set up chairs at his own expense, but the trustees tossed them out. For 12 years, the congregation chose other men to give the Sunday afternoon lectures. College students interrupted his services and passed evil rumors about him. He was so shunned that he wrote with amazement when a fellow of the school was not ashamed to walk with him for a quarter of an hour. In spite of this opposition, Simeon persevered. He preached directly from the word of God and gradually won some of the congregation to his side. 30 years later, however, he still faced elements of revolt. That's remarkable. I don't get the 12 years, um, much less the 30 years to endure and press on. He started numerous societies, missionary tract, Bible, very influential Among his protégés was Henry Martin, the famed missionary and Bible translator. Asked how he endured his many afflictions, the 71-year-old Simeon replied, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. That's where we all live, but especially leaders, especially pastors. 
we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice. Here's the key to the Christian life. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, Christ, has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. That's the position. That's the way to walk out the Christian life. By the way, just because there's opposition does not mean a pastor is on the wrong side. He might be. It just doesn't mean it automatically. Jesus was resisted. Moses was resisted. Paul was resisted. It is safe to say that all pastors will be resisted at points. So what's the motivation to press through the hedge? Pastors are servants of Christ. Plain and simple. And Jesus serves as our example. So leaders suffer as Jesus suffered. Leaders live with one eye on the cross. They live aware their king and their savior died there for their sins. And that cross impacts them profoundly. Because everything they have they've received. They don't think highly of themselves. And they don't lord it over others. They care about what God thinks and about what God values. And so Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Christ is all, and leaders serve Jesus by caring for his sheep, his flock, the body. You, you get to see what a man is made of when suffering comes. You, you know at that point what you've got. In times of ease, in times of blessing, it's less certain what you have. But when suffering comes, as it came to my family recently, when my one son's youngest was diagnosed with cancer, when that comes then you get to see what holds. You get to see what the center is and what a life is built upon. Tests reveal us, suffering reveals us, and it exposes the man of God to who he really is. Number four, final point, leaders are fathers in the faith, verses 14 through 21. I do not write these things, says Paul, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. 
For the kingdom of God is not consistent talk, but in power. What do you wish shall come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, Paul had a position, and pastors have, obviously, a position. But it is possible for mature believers to invest in others. You have believers here, both men and women, who invest their lives in others and help disciple, help mature, help them to grow up. But those mature people, and that's a blessed gift when you have that, they would not be considered fathers, spiritual fathers of the congregation. That will most likely fall to a pastor or pastors. And this is a glorious thing when you have a spiritual father who serves as your guide. What's a father do? What does any faithful father do? What does a faithful pastor do? Well, there are two essentials in caring for the flock of God. Remember, they're already preparing them for eternity. They're feeding them the word of God and helping them apply the word into their lives. But there are two essential duties that a dad has and that a pastor has. First, pastors and leaders seek to encourage as much as possible. And Paul writes about that in verses 14 through 17. Good leaders seek to encourage as much as possible. So Paul, in this case, not only seeks to remind them of doctrine, but he sends Timothy to remind them of Paul's ways in Christ. It isn't just what we profess that matters. The way we live matters. So pastors are concerned for the way you live your life. And they want to encourage you toward sound doctrine. They want to encourage you toward godliness. We're meant to be little Christs. And so our life should be filled with love, sacrificial care for one another, humility, courage, integrity, godliness, purity, generosity, serving, wisdom. These are marks we seek to apply in our life because we're called to godliness and purity in the church. Back in the States, there's a gentleman named Robert Bork that was put up for the Supreme Court by Reagan. And in 1996, he wrote a book that he called Slouching Toward Gomorrah. I think if he were alive today, he would use the word sprinting toward Gomorrah, because in the U.S. there's just a massive revolution taking place where godliness is being promoted and flaunted, and that will obviously at some points come into the church. We're called to godliness and purity, and we're not called, though we love folks in the world, we're not called to accept them as they are. We start there, we love on them, we give them time, we seek to comfort them, but they don't stay there forever and forever. Because if they stay there forever and forever, it means minimally eternity with Christ is not in play and they will experience the wrath of God. So love does not allow us to let folks there. So we're going to encourage people toward godliness. So leaders encourage, but second, they rebuke and correct when necessary. Verses 18 through 21. You want a pastor who will love you enough to correct you when you stray. We're not talking sensing an attitude. We're talking lifestyle that's clearly against the scriptures. You want a pastor who will correct you and who will confront you. If you are wise, you desire to be adjusted. If you are wise, you desire when a pastor has a concern about your life. 
I'd encourage you to consider inviting your pastors to speak into your life if they have any area of concern. Because these men have wisdom and they put in position by God for a good reason. So you're wise if you lean on their wisdom, wanting to know if there are any concerns. Now, I taught this sermon recently in Akron, in our church there. At this point in the sermon, I said, I'm just going to ask for a show of hands. Who here wants to be corrected by their pastor? And nobody put their hand up. I said, okay, now that... Now take notes, folks. You're supposed to want that. So, so it's like, I don't know if they weren't listening to me or if they were, you know, some happy place. Um, but I said, you should want this. You, sh- you should want to be adjusted and corrected. Everything we have is grace. We're not impressed with ourselves. So if someone has a concern, isn't it wise to have that shared with us? And isn't it wise to ask for that and to invite that and to draw that out. That is a humble person. A humble person is going to have grace and I think that's a wonderful thing. So pastors encourage and pastors rebuke just like faithful dads encourage and rebuke. They do so because they have your very best interest in mind. They care for you. To be apathetic to your condition, to be indifferent to it, would be to simply let you go. Wherever you drift, whatever happens. And that would not be love, that would not be care, and pastors are not called to that because they're servants of Christ. So let me close with this. To review, faithful Christian pastors and leaders are servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel. That's how you ought to view Josh and Tim. Servants of Christ, stewards of the gospel. They are examples to you. They are sufferers in front of you. I can guarantee you that. And they are spiritual fathers as they lead this church. So two thoughts and I'm done. To those who aspire to be a leader and perhaps even a pastor one day, to those who aspire to leadership, which I would define as influence, This is a good thing. And I want to let you know what your path looks like. The path to being a leader in the kingdom of God and in the church of God usually has a cross that you will go through and there may well be a desert season in store for you. It isn't just the glory of a position because Jesus cares about the people leading his church a great deal and he's going to invest in them. And so often there's a season that you might call a cross or there's a desert season you go through. Oswald Sanders in his book in Spiritual Leadership says this. He quotes Samuel Brengel, a gifted leader who served for many years in the Salvation Army. He outlined the road to spiritual authority and leadership. And I want to underscore spiritual authority. We want to be influential in the lives of others and that takes a real, tangible spiritual authority. So if you desire to be a leader, it isn't just, hey, I want a position. There's a sense of spiritual reality, spiritual clout, influence that you want to lay hold of. So Brengel says this, it's not won by promotion, but by many prayers and tears. It's attained by confession of sin and much heart searching and humbling before God by self-surrender, 
by a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, uncomplaining embrace of the cross, and by an eternal, unfaltering looking unto Jesus crucified. It is not gained by seeking great things for ourselves, but like Paul, by counting those things that are gain as loss for Christ. This is a great price, but must be paid by the leader who would not be merely a nominal, but a real spiritual leader of men, a leader whose power is recognized and felt in heaven and on earth and in hell. God wants to show such people how strong he really is to Chronicles 69. But not all who aspire to leadership are willing to pay such a high personal price. So if you're one who aspires to leadership, my encouragement to you is be faithful in little things. Don't limit God in what he does in your life. We're simply servants. Everything we have is grace. And so we're simply positioning ourselves to be used by the master. If he wants to totally waste our life in our eyes, and we're martyred at age 25, it's his prerogative. He's our Lord and Savior. He's building his church. He's doing things his way. And he rewards ultimately based on how we apply his truth into our lives and the way we live our lives. The person who dies at 25 for Jesus isn't shortchanged because they're following Jesus. So my encouragement would be to be faithful in little things because God often rewards duty done faithfully with more responsibility. When Joseph was in jail, he was raised up. He couldn't help but be raised up because of his godliness and his wisdom. And so he's hidden away. He's totally out of sight. But God's there and God's at work and God can make that happen. We're never out of God's sight and God can do what he wants with us. We won't miss his purpose for our life. So I want to encourage you, if you desire to be a leader, give yourself to the small things. Pay the price to grow in leadership. And second thing I want to do is thank God for your faithful pastors. Um, I said earlier, thank them when you see them and it'd be appropriate. But what I'd like to ask them to do right now in just a minute, I'd like to ask Josh and Tim to stand and turn and face you. And I'd like you to thank God for them, give glory to God for them, and thank them with your applause for their faithful service. These are good men, not perfect men. They're good men who care for your souls. I see the way they spend themselves and are spent on your behalf. And so I'd like to invite you to thank God for them if you would. So guys, if you'd please stand now. 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 Turn and face the folks. Let's thank God for these men who love you and give themselves for you. I love these guys dearly, and I love their wives as well. Um, You're a blessed church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the leaders you've given us, men of God, genuine, genuine men, men who sacrifice, men who care, men who love you, are your servants, and only wish to be found faithful. Lord, I ask that you fill them with your spirit. I ask that you would comfort them in the midst of doubts that can come, in the midst of difficulties that can come. 
Lord, I ask that they would know the sweetness of the good news of the gospel. And I ask that they be encouraged because the work progresses on. Encourage them, we pray. I pray that this church would be a unified church. Build your church, we pray. Help us to be salt and light in this world. And Lord, I pray for our unity. I pray that you would build us together. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.